Well, amen. If that didn't get you going a little bit, right? It's exciting, right? We love, I love that video. I found, I'll be honest with you, that video, I found it uh, several months ago, and it was one of the inspirations for me to think about this series, just because that's a song I don't think about a whole lot. Now, kids sing it, I like it, it's a cool song, but when you hear it in a different way, sometimes it changes how you understand it. And I was just kind of surfing the net one day and uh, saw that and thought, man, that's good, that's good. And I thought maybe Jeff and I could do that. There were some barriers, like my lack of musical ability was a major barrier or singing voice, but... Uh, take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 2. The book of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to talk this week in our series of messages called Carols, where we're talking about particular carols in Scripture, uh, what the Scripture was behind them, where they came from. And so I'm going to ask you again this week to take your Bibles out and turn to the uh, book of Luke, chapter 2, and to take out a hymnal. And turn it to hymn number 95. 95. I feel like I have to tell you every week when I tell you that, that I'm not going to sing. Just to calm any uh, nerves that might be in the place, right? Now, there are people in this room that get to hear me sing almost every Sunday. Diane has to do mic checks. So she has to listen in her ears. And she says that that's probably where it needs to stay. It's right there, not among y'all, all right? I think I've told you the story before, but there was a, a time. People ask me, why do you make jokes about you singing? Because, you know, Cliff Forbes once told me that, um, Cliff told me that when I, when I hit the right key, I've got a decent voice. But the problem is I don't hit the right key very often. Uh, there was a time when I was preaching in Ripley. We were live over the radio. And uh, one Sunday, by accident, they put my mic on the singing instead of the worship leaders. And so as it was going out all over Ripley to all... 12 people listening to it, nine of who were my family. My dad called, we were talking that after, he said, um, you know how dads are, they want to be kind, right, gentle. He said, you might tell your um, um, sound tech that um, he had you on singing this morning, and it wasn't quite as good as what normally is on the radio. I said, all right, dad, we'll take that into consideration. So we're talking today about go tell it on the mountain. Now, just like last, remember last week, we don't know who wrote O come, O come, Emmanuel. We don't know who wrote Go Tell It on the Mountain. Now, if you look, if you've got your, your uh, uh, hymnal open there, at the bottom it'll tell you words are John W. Work, Jr. Now, here's what we know. John W. Work almost assuredly did not write this. He compiled it. This was a group of spirituals, a group of uh, songs that slaves sang in the South that were compiled by John W. Work. And so what we don't know is who exactly wrote this, but we have a good idea of where it came from. And this song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, came from the south somewhere between 1840 and 1860, more than likely. And it came from the lips of slaves. As they would sing about the good news that comes in Jesus Christ. And so when you read the lyrics to go tell it on the mountain and the history behind it, you hear a song looking towards hope and a future. 
while shepherds kept their watching, or silent flocks by night, behold, throughout the heavens there shone a holy light. And the shepherds feared and trembled when low above the earth rang out the angel chorus that hailed our Savior's birth. Down in a lowly manger, the humble Christ was born. And God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas morn. Go, tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go, tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Now, the song seems to be referencing two primary passages of Scripture. And the first is the one that you were open to, which is Luke chapter 2. And you know the story of Luke chapter 2, right? This is the time of year we focus on it. You can turn on the TV and even uh, Linus and Charlie Brown are talking about it. It's the story of the shepherds. The story of a group of guys out in a field keeping watch over their flocks by night when suddenly there was with them an angel who said, Glory to God. Peace on earth. Good favor on those who God's favor rests. I bring you good news of great joy. That shall be for all peoples. That today for you is born in the city of David a Savior. The Christ, a Messiah, the Son of God. And suddenly there was with the angel a host singing and praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to the people on whom His favor rests. So there's this story of the announcement of the birth of Christ. Facebook, being on Facebook, is that I get to see people's Birth announcements. Like, you know, they have a baby. Just this week we had uh, a child born uh, in our congregation. People, uh, Chatham's had a brand new grandbaby this week. See that picture on there is Jason's holding baby. Teacher at um, Madison Creek where we, uh, all our kids are apart and Susan teaches, had a baby this week. And it's fun to share in the joy of that. Right? It's fun to share in those moments. Well, imagine what heaven was waiting to do when Jesus was born. They break into song, angels announce His birth. And Luke chapter 2 tells us that the first people to hear that the Savior has been born are a group of shepherds out in their fields by night. The first passage of Scripture that it references is Luke chapter I want you to now turn back to Isaiah chapter 52. Because there's a second passage of Scripture, a second part of Scripture that's referenced in this song that gives us a little understanding of what's there as well. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, we're going to reference this particular verse throughout the rest of the sermon. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The author of this particular song 
is basically exhorting his people to be the people described in Isaiah chapter 52. People that will bring good news. People that will share the gospel. People that will go tell it on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere. When we talk about salvation, when we talk about the gospel, what we're talking about is good news, peace, happiness, salvation, and a realization that our God reigns. And what's interesting is, This particular passage in Isaiah is referenced in the New Testament in one of the most famous missionary passages of all time. When Paul is establishing the need for missions in our lives, he goes in Romans chapter 10. You go to the next slide, John, I think. And he says, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now we're going to leave it there for just a second. Because his basic question is, if the world is supposed to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, how are they going to hear unless we go? And how can we go unless we're sent? A couple of years ago, this was the focus verse on our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It is a focus verse many times in the International Mission Board, North American Mission Board, that if we expect to stay here and somehow save there, it's not going to happen. That we have to be a part of a people that are praying for, giving to, and going to the places where the gospel needs to be. How can they call on Him and they have not believed? How can they believe unless they've heard? How can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can they preach unless someone is sent? And then Paul says immediately, immediately, the next words are, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, the, what I love about Go Tell It on the Mountain is that it connects Christmas to the Great Commission. You don't have many missionary Christmas songs. You ever thought about that? You know I mean? Christmas songs that then say, go tell. But here's what I want us to see today, and these are the things that we want to do. Three things that I want us to see. First of all, we want to see to whom the gospel comes, what the gospel brings, and where the gospel sends. First thing, we need to notice to whom the gospel comes. What's the first verse of that go tell it on the mountain, right? It says, well, who kept their watch? Shepherds, right? See, we have this idealized picture of what shepherds are that isn't in line with what Scripture tells us or what culture reminds us of of that day. See, if you look at my, if you go to my house right now, up on our mantle is a uh, is a nativity scene. I'm sure that there are nativity scenes in almost all of your houses. And the nativity scene in my house that's up on our mantle, it's one of many we have. We have the little people set over by the kids' room. We have a a, a little glass set somewhere. But the one on our mantle is by a company called Willow Tree. And it's this nice uh, wood-like carvings, and they're really beautiful. And the shepherds in it are just look so calm and peaceful and well-kept and clean and look like some, you know, good-looking teenage boys. But shepherds were not 
respectable people in society. In fact, they were considered to be the lowest class in Jewish society. They were homeless. They didn't really have a home to live in. They kind of wandered with the sheep. They had the least desirable job. They were the ultimate unskilled laborer. In fact, the job was considered so easy and no need of skill that it was often given to children with the hope that children would eventually grow out of it. If you were at a dinner party back in Jewish society and someone asked you what your 25-year-old son Johnny was doing, what's old Johnny doing now? No one wanted to say, well, he's a shepherd. It's like the equivalent today of he just plays video games in the basement. That's what he does. They were homeless. They were always dirty. They would stay outside with animals, sleep with animals for weeks at a time. They were the kind of people you could smell before you saw. They were religious outcasts. Because they stayed with the animals all the time, they couldn't take the Sabbath off. And because they couldn't take the Sabbath off, and because of the animals that they worked with, that we considered unclean, they weren't allowed into church. No one could touch them and remain ceremonially clean. And they were considered untrustworthy. Do you realize that in a court, they did not accept the testimony of a shepherd? These were not your typical candidates to receive the first announcement of the King of Kings. I think it's fascinating that this spiritual written by a slave would be written about men that were homeless, doing menial tasks, always dirty, outcast in their society, who were considered untrustworthy and not even real human beings. That's who the gospel was first announced to. That's not how people normally do it. When people want to make a big announcement or they want to announce something big is coming, they usually have a gala. You think about Apple announcing new technology. You think about a president announcing a new initiative. You think about a company giving a new expansion. I just thought about the contrast of the way our president-elect announced he was going to even be running for president with the announcement of the King of Kings. Y'all remember this? This is Donald Trump announcing he's going to be president or running for president. And the way he did it, which is the way, I'm not saying this is good or bad, it's just how they do it. He got on an escalator in Trump Tower and he rode down the escalator waving at people the whole time. People waving signs. This girl apparently really excited to be in the picture there. Thousands of people gathered around, national TV audience, everybody watching at once because all the attention had to be on him. Because he's announcing he's running for President of the United States. And the way he was going to run was he was a big name, celebrity, big time guy. And he had to announce that. Now think back to what we're talking about here. Shepherds. Homeless. Dirty. Outcast. Untrustworthy. You ever wondered why the shepherds? There are lots of theories, but I love what I read this week that said... In coming to the shepherds, he proved that there is no one too broken, too poor, or too insignificant for the gospel. In fact, God prefers the poor and broken because they're in a better position to receive the gospel. The essence of sin is pride. And we must come to a place to receive the gospel when we let our pride go. 
Look at Psalm 51, verse 17 says this. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Scripture over and over again reminds us that those that have a lot of money, that have a lot of material wealth, they are hard to reach with the gospel because they think they have need of nothing. Those that are talented or have good looks are often hard to reach with the gospel because they think they don't have need of anything. Those with moral goodness that are just good people sometimes fail to see their need for the gospel because they don't think they need to be saved. And yet our sense of self-sufficiency is an illusion. One small, microscopic bacteria entering your body could change everything. I read this week that a general in the Civil War who had led his men through battle died because a tick bit him. You're only one phone call away from disaster. You're only one unexpected summons to the boss's office. You're only one look in the mirror of your own morality to realizing That we are poor, pitiful, broken people. We must realize that the reason it's good news that the shepherds got the gospel first is because we are all shepherds spiritually. Think about the story in Luke chapter 18. Remember two men went in to pray and one was a Pharisee and the Pharisee stood up and said, Lord, thank you for not making me like him. Or other people. All their sin and disregard for you. And you remember the sinner comes in and says, tax collector says, have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. Jesus says one of those men walked away righteous. A few weeks ago we were riding in the car and uh, Luke, uh, which I would ask you to pray for Luke. Luke's in that moment of... Uh, struggling with the decision of not struggling, but thinking about accepting Christ and we're praying for him and talking with him. And so occasionally Luke's not one of those that'll like say, Hey dad, let's sit down and have a conversation about something. He'll just bring up a question out of the blue. And so we're riding down the road the other day and he just says, Hey dad, you know, in the Bible, it says that it's easier for a donkey to go through a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. And I was like, well, it's a camel. Yeah, I understand. Saying that, and Luke was like, well, I like donkey. Okay, Luke, we'll go with donkey, all right? And so he just looks at me and he says, serious question. He said, Dad, does that mean anybody has ever gone to heaven that's rich? He said, because you can't do that. You, you can't put a donkey through a needle. It can't happen. And I, I turned the conversation to what Jesus then says, because they say the same thing. Disciples say the same thing, Right? And Jesus says what is impossible with man is possible with God. But just that realization that it's so hard. We we gloss over that. You know why we gloss over that? Because remember we talked a couple of years ago about how all of us are rich. You all remember that? You got a roof over your head and a car in the driveway. You're able to make it here today. You got clothes on your back and food. You ain't got to worry about it. That you're rich compared to the most of the world. That you're in the top. Like, what was it? We're like in the top three to one percent. Of the world. We're the one percenters. We're rich. Scripture says it's impossible outside of God for the rich to enter heaven. It's because they don't think they have need of Him. 
The Christmas story is an amazing reminder that the lowest, the most insignificant, are important in the kingdom of God. I want you to imagine for a minute, and for most of us in this room, this is going to be virtually impossible for to get our heads around. But I want you to imagine being an African-American slave in the 1850s in the South. And how the culture of which you were a part tried to make you feel as insignificant as possible. And the comfort you took in the fact that God came to the shepherds. And not even the good shepherds. He came to third shift. Here's the thing. You don't have to be a shepherd or a slave to be saved. But you've got to have the heart of one. Where there's no pride and you realize that without Christ, there's no hope. So the gospel came to the shepherds watching over their flocks by night. Look what the gospel brings. It says it in the song here that it brings our Savior's birth. Salvation that blessed Christmas morn. Like so many of the spirituals that came from that time and that place, the song focuses on God's promise of deliverance from suffering. Look and notice what the gospel brings for us. Salvation, wholeness, a Savior has been born. What are we to tell everywhere? What are we to spread everywhere? We're looking at Isaiah chapter 52, 7 again, where it says, how beautiful. You can put that up, John. Are the, on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And then look at all that it means. Publishes peace. Good news of happiness. Publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. The good news is of Christmas that a Savior has been born, that salvation is here, that the curse has been broken. My girls love fairy tales right now. They're typical girls, girls. They love princesses and they love fairy tale moments, but they almost can't watch some of the fairy tales because there's always a scene when a curse is cast, when someone falls asleep, when someone loses their beauty, when someone loses their life. And they always are in the midst of it's tragedy, it's tragedy, it's tragedy. And we tell them to hold on. Good news is coming. Hold on. Things are going to get better. Hold on. It'll be okay. Because you know if it says Disney at the front, it ain't going to be sad at the end. Can I get an amen? But isn't that good to know when you're watching those movies? Now for those guys, we may not be fairy tales, but we like those military rescues. When I was growing up in the 80s, it was Sly Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Predator and Rambo. And no matter how bad it looked or how many people were coming, you knew Rambo's going to win. The curse has been broken. I almost made it through a whole sermon without quoting C.S. Lewis, but we're not going to make it. So, In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this scene at the very beginning where they're talking about the devastation that has come upon the land and it's winter. 
And they say, why is it so bad here? And they said, it's always winter and never Christmas. One of the things I love about Christmas, I mean, outside of all the spiritual theological stuff we talk about, is that it is a bright spot in the midst of a really cold time. You know, that's why I don't know that I'd ever want to celebrate Christmas in Australia or Brazil or Hawaii. Now, if one of y'all want to give us a trip there next year, we can see how it works, right? But there's something about waking up and it is freezing cold and the light of the Lord is celebrated. Think about this slave writing this spiritual The life felt the shame of subjugation to another human being. The injustice and abuse at the hands of others. The thanklessness and uncompensated toil that would have happened. And families that were broken apart. And the good news of the gospel is that all of that is temporary. And that Jesus will reverse it all. You see, sometimes we focus so much on the salvation of our sins, and that is important. We are wiped clean. The slate is taken away. But we also have this promise that with salvation comes complete healing and the reversing of the curse that is on our land. And somewhere in the future, we will... Our sight and our minds will be blown by the exceedingly... Great stuff that God has prepared for us. I read this week a startling statistic because it just shows a lack of understanding of what heaven's going to be like. Two-thirds of Christians believe that there will be, uh, in heaven, we won't have a body. But Scripture teaches not that we're going to be some spirits floating around like Casper, that we will have bodies and that we'll live in a new heaven and a new earth, and that the new earth will be primarily our home that will be just like it was when it was created. And I want you to think about the wonders of the earth we have now and think about what must the glorified version of that be. Like a glorified Grand Canyon. What is that like? Or a glorified beach. Glorified Everest. What about a glorified ribeye? Man, somebody says, now wait, we're not going to eat meat in heaven. What did Jesus eat when he came back? They had fish. So, bam, we're going to have meat in heaven and it's going to be unbelievable. I mean, imagine a glorified Nayland Stadium. Isn't that going to be awesome? The people... Questioning the glory of heaven. That's what I heard. I joke about that. But for someone that is toiling in life, for those of us that have struggles in life, we realize that it is temporary and that it is nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of what God is going to do for us. Isaiah 49.22 says this. In that day, I will give the signal. And they will carry your sons back to you in their arms. They will bring your daughters on their shoulders. The idea is that in that day, things will be completely restored. Restoration means freedom from sin, but freedom to be able to live as God created us to live. Restoration means justice, that God's justice will reign in all places with all people. And restoration means that our families will be restored, that the spiritual family of God will be restored completely in that day. You think about what the gospel brings 
And it is good news of peace and happiness and salvation. And a realization that your God reigns. When we think about whom it came to, we think about what the gospel brings. We then must also think about where the gospel sends. If the gospel means that there is no one too lowly for God to pursue, no one so insignificant for God to overlook, no one so guilty that God will forsake, no one so broken God cannot heal, no one so lost that God cannot find, that He is going to save to the uttermost, then we have to go and tell it everywhere we can. You think about the mount imagery, both in Isaiah and in the hymn, in the carol. In most of the cities in that day, in the day of Christ, in the day of Isaiah, were in between mountains. And when news would come, they would come from on high, from the mountains. And so they would look for news. In fact, they would put watchmen on the wall. And a verse of Go Tell on the Mountain that's not in our hymnal but is out there is a verse about the fact that God has set us as the watchmen. That we stand on the wall and we look to the sky and we wait for the news to come. And the news that has come for us through Christmas is that the battle is over and the victory has been won. Nobody is too broken. Nobody is too poor. Nobody is too insignificant. Jesus has come for you. And what that means is that in our sphere of influence, in the people we interact with every day, in the people that we don't interact with, but are they're living in sin, living without Christ, that Jesus has come for them. And nobody is too broken. Nobody is too poor. And nobody is too insignificant. We must go. You see, the good news of Isaiah tells us that peace has come, that salvation has come, but it says that we are to be the feet that carry the gospel to the people in our world. And the question I have for you is, how are you doing? The time of year you go to Target or you go to Walmart or you go to the mall or you go to Home Depot or you go to Hobby Lobby, almost any store you go to, there'll be somebody standing outside ringing a bell, Right? What group are they with? Salvation Army, right? And they're there and they're ringing their bell and they're taking donations and all that's happening, right? Anybody know the name of the guy that founded Salvation Army? We've got a history lesson right here. His name is William Booth. William Booth was talking about the need that we have to go as believers in Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. And this is a quote he had. I think I've got it up there. Not called, did you say? Refuse to hear the call, I think you should say. Just put your ear down to the Bible and hear Him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. It goes on, he says. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go back to their father's house and warn their brothers and sisters not to come there. And then he finishes by saying, And then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. 
The very first thing he says is people say, well, I'm not called to that. He says not called, I think, is the wrong thing to say. I think I didn't listen to the call. Because if you look at Scripture, every single one of us is called. For us, it's simply a question of obedience. Acts 1-8, we talk about it a lot around here, right? He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Our job is to be the ones that go tell upon the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere. To go tell upon the mountains that Jesus Christ is born. In just a few moments during our time of response, I'll be here and we'll take any response that you have. You want to talk about joining the church? You want to talk about um, asking Jesus Christ into your heart to be saved for the first time? I'll be glad to talk to you about any of that. But we're also going to take our extravagant giving offering. And the extravagant giving offering this year is specifically designed to meet Acts 1-8. And so as you give today, we will be going literally to the ends of the earth, but also to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. We've talked over the last few weeks about a lot of these ministries. The International Mission Board and the work that they're doing overseas is unbelievable. Our Lottie Moon Christmas offering, half of what you give today in this moment will go directly to missionaries on the field, giving the gospel to people in some of the most difficult to reach areas in the world. Now we're going to split the other three uh, ministries with the other half and Club 180 ministry that, that Terry and Angie was, were here a few weeks ago talked to you about all the work that's going there and the church they're planting in the midst of that. Mission LA where we over the last few years have been involved in what North American Mission Board supports going on in planting churches in Los Angeles. A place that has more lost people in its city limits than the total number of people in Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama and Mississippi combined. Where the gospel is desperately needed. And the next door ministry, which is our Jerusalem, right here. That's the one we haven't been able to talk as much about in recent weeks. But it's an unbelievable ministry that ministers to women specifically that are going through difficulties in life with drug abuse or with issues mentally or in a rehabilitation manner. With a Christ-based curriculum. They have 28-day programs, they have six-month programs, and then they have programs that help people for a couple of years get a class and get through some things to help train them. So ministry started out of First Baptist Nashville, and the need for it has grown to the point that they are ministering to needs they never imagined and are still, to this day, expanding the people they're able to reach. But in order to do that, they need the help of churches like ours to continue. Let me read you a testimony from somebody from the next door. It says, before I got to the next door, I was in an empty, hollow shell, completely void of joy. I lived for my addiction and followed it everywhere to which it led me, to countless hospital beds, to separation from my children, to sleeping in bus stations and on sidewalks, to long stints in mind-numbing psychiatric hospitals, and to confined concrete walls and steel doors. Through God and the amazing staff of this faith-based facility, I have relearned how to live a life of wholeheartedness. I have been shown love and compassion as well as a sense of self-worth. 
I can never adequately thank the staff for the hope I found, a hope of which will never let go. I came to the next door and will never be the same. Now, here's the thing. That's an amazing testimony from a young woman that has been a part of this church. That's Brooke Foster. And she is someone that has now gone with our church back to minister to the ladies there. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here's the thing about that. As your pastor, I happen to believe that Jesus is being symbolic and he's being literal there. And he means that literally it is our job with the resources we have to reach people in Jerusalem, the next door, Judea, Club 180 in Lynch, Kentucky, Samaria, Sin, Los Angeles, and to the ends of the earth. To the IMB Lottie Moon. And today you're going to have an opportunity to go tell it on the mountain. Do you realize that no. Think about this. No believer in the history of the world has been able to impact all four as easily as you can. Today as you give, not a dime of this goes to things we're doing here at this church. It goes out. It goes to ministries that are happening in other places. And you're able, in one simple step, to impact all four of those places. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing, Go Tell It on the Mountain as our invitation hymn. It probably is the first time you've ever sung, Go Tell It on the Mountain as an invitation hymn. But that's our call today, our response, to go and tell everywhere. Let's pray together.